Our loving Heavenly Father, we heard this morning that by nature we suppress your truth. By nature we don't want to listen to your word. And so, Father, please help us this evening. Please prevent us from that by your spirit. Please open our hearts, open our heads to hear you speak to us, to listen to you, and to be changed by your word this evening. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last uh, couple of evenings, you'll know that this term we're looking at the book of Genesis. Uh, And so far, we've seen some pretty amazing things, haven't we? In Genesis 1 and 2, we've been given a picture of God's perfect world. A picture of creation as it was in the beginning. In chapter 1, we saw God's majestic power and authority as he spoke the universe into existence. With just his words, God created a world full of beauty and order and life. And then in chapter 2, we saw the purpose, the intention for God's good world. We saw that it was for relationships. Perfect relationships, relationships between God and humanity and the rest of creation. If you were at Life Group or Hub this week, then you've seen that pattern of the kingdom. God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the paradise garden of Eden. And living under God's rule and so enjoying his blessing, the blessing of those perfect relationships. It's been a beautiful picture. It's been a picture of paradise. But the problem is, it's a very different picture to the one that we see and experience each day. Yes, there are some really wonderful things about life in this world. But I don't think any of us here this evening would describe it as paradise. Far from being perfect, the relationships that we experience today are often broken and painful. That's true of the the big events in life, isn't it? When we hear about another sex scandal on the news or a a terror attack or another paedophile gang, we are rightly horrified at the brokenness of our world. But it isn't just the big shocking news headlines, is it? Each one of us here this evening will know the pain of broken relationships. Whether it's with a parent or a child, a spouse or a friend, all of us would have thought and said things that we wish we hadn't. All of us would have hurt or been hurt by other people. And so the reality is, well, we are a long, long way from the paradise that we've had described in the first two chapters of Genesis. And the big question is, how did we get here? How did we get here? That's the question. All through history, people, whether they're religious or not, have poured time and money and thought into answering that question. Because if we can work out how we got here, if we can figure out what the cause of all the brokenness and pain is, well, then we can begin to find a solution. 
We're desperate to answer the how question because if we can get the right diagnosis, well, then maybe we can find a cure. If you were with us in this morning's service looking at Romans chapter 1, we saw God's diagnosis, didn't we? God's MRI on the human condition. We saw that humans suppress the truth about God, that they exchange the glory and praise of the God who created us for creation, for things made by God. That's what we saw this morning. And and in Genesis 3, this evening, we're going to see how it all began, where it started, where that brokenness came in to this world. Genesis 3 will show us how we went from God's perfect world to the broken world we experience today. And so I know that that these few verses, they might be a really familiar story to you. They might be brand new, but, but either way, we need to pay careful attention because here we have the diagnosis of the human condition, the root cause of all that is wrong out there and all that is wrong in here. And in Genesis 3, we see that the problem is all to do with how we treat God's word. It's all to do with how we treat God's word. And so the first thing we see is that God's word is distorted. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? My daughter, Imi, if you've met her, she's only two, but she's just started to enjoy Disney films. And one of her, uh, her current obsession at the moment is The Lion King. Uh, she doesn't really, she's not really bothered with the, the rest of the film. We just watch the songs over and over and over again. And really, with Disney films for Emmy, she just loves anything with a talking animal in it. She loves it. Uh, and as we read Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it, I think it can sound a bit more like a scene from a Disney film than from history. But that's not the case, is it? We've seen Genesis is not a fairy tale. It is fact. And the snake in verse 1, well, he's not a friendly cartoon character. No, Revelation 20 tells us that he's actually Satan himself. And what does Satan, the father of lies, do when he finds Eve in the garden? Well, he begins to question and distort God's word. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's not an all-out attack, is it? Satan doesn't come running up to Eve in red tights holding a pitchfork. No, he's crafty. He subtly begins to sow the seeds of doubt by just twisting what God says. Remember the original command back in chapter 2, verse 16. God had said, you are free. Free to eat from any tree in the garden. You're free to enjoy my abundant goodness and provision. It's yours. Enjoy it. There's just one restriction. Only one. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's off limits. 
Everything else is yours. As, as one writer puts it, there's a whole world of yes for Adam and Eve and just one tree of no. But the snake, you know, he, he distorts God's good command. Did he really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And you see what's behind his question. Do you see the subtle lie? God is a spoil sport. He's unreasonable. Would a generous God really say something like that? Would a generous and good God really say no to you like that? Satan's opening attack, it's subtle, but the lie he tells is powerful. A good God would not restrict you like this. A good God would want you to have absolute freedom. And then in verse 3, we see that Eve begins to believe the lie. She also distorts God's word. Verse 3, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. God has said nothing about touching the tree. And so whilst it isn't as blatant as the serpent, Eve still begins to distort God's word. Already she begins to think, maybe God is a bit unreasonable. That Maybe he is a bit restrictive, a bit petty. Eve listens to the lie, and so do we. Does God really say that sex is only for marriage? Or that marriage is for one man and one woman? How old-fashioned. How patronizing. Does God really say there's only one way to worship him in the Lord Jesus? How intolerant. How naive. This God sounds so restrictive, so petty. He clearly doesn't want what's best for you. No, no. You need to be free. Free to express yourself. Free to do what you need to do. Free to be who you need to be. It's the lie that our culture has bought into completely. The lie that says true freedom is found in in a freedom without any restriction. True flourishing is has no boundaries. It's the lie that we see everywhere from sexual ethics to identity politics. But we do need to be careful as we look at Genesis 3 not to just point the finger to those people out there. Because this is also a lie that I and that we believe all too easily. Just think about it for a minute. When you read or hear something from the Bible that you don't really like, what is your gut response? Do you believe it and obey it as the word of our good and generous God? Or like me, are you tempted to to try and explain it away? Even if that means maybe just distorting God's word a little bit. Distorting what the Bible plainly says. Satan distorts God's word and Eve takes the bait. But he's not finished yet. 
Because in verses 4 and 5, we see that God's word is denied. God's word is denied. Look at verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Uh, Satan's approach becomes slightly less subtle now, doesn't it? He outright denies God's word. And that denial comes in two stages. First, he denies the truth about God's word. In particular, the truth about God's judgment. Again, remember back to chapter 2 last week where God issued Adam and Eve a very clear warning. Don't eat from that tree. If you do, you will die. Pretty black and white. But then in 3 verse 4, Satan says, no, you won't. God won't really do that. He won't really judge you. There'll be no consequences. Go ahead. Live a little. And once again, this is a, a lie that our culture loves to believe. It's a lie that, that leads to the creation of websites like Ashley Madison, where married men and married women can anonymously find people to have affairs with. It's the lie that has led 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women to regularly use pornography. It's the lie that actions don't have consequences, that things behind closed doors don't matter. That God doesn't really care what you do with your computer or your money or your speech or your thoughts or your actions. It's the lie that says there will be no judgment. That the world has been going on as it has for thousands of years. People have been doing what they want, how they want, when they want. And look, God's done nothing about it. He's just bluffing. Go ahead. God's word can be safely ignored. But I hope you can see that 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 is such a foolish thing to say and to believe when we consider all that we've seen just in Genesis so far. So far in Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2, when God says something, it happens. Remember that repeated phrase in chapter 1? Then God said, dot, 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 and it was so. God says, let there be light, and immediately there is light. God speaks, and it happens. There's no doubt, no confusion. Everything he says is true. But then the devil says, no, not this time. This thing won't happen. Judgment, no, that won't happen. It's a lie, and you can just safely ignore it. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. Satan denies the truth of God's word. You won't really die, he says. And he also denies the goodness of God's word. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In the perfect world of chapter 2, judging between good and evil was a job reserved for God alone. God alone would define what is good and what is not. And humans, well, they were to trust God. They were to listen to him, trust his goodness and obey his command. But Satan says, no, no, no. 
But you've got it wrong again, Eve. God can't be trusted. He knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. And he doesn't want that for you. He's just trying to keep you in your place. He's holding you back. You don't need him. You can be God of your life. And here, I think, is the key to understanding sin in Genesis 3. Just five words. You will be like God. We can distort and doubt and deny God's word, but in the end, it is the desire to be like God that causes us to reject him. It's the belief that we can be the supreme authority. We can be king of our lives. The belief that things will just be so much better with me in charge. And do you see the the sad irony in Satan's words? Adam and Eve are already like God. They're made in his image. They are privileged and valued by him. They already have a unique role, an authority in God's creation. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And they want more. And so next we see that God's word is disobeyed. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Satan uses his cunning and his lies to tempt Eve into disobedience. But in verse 6, we see that in the end, it is the personal choice of of Eve and then Adam to disobey God. Yes, they're tempted. Yes, they're lied to. But they're not forced. They're not coerced into doing anything that they don't want to do. And so as we thought about this morning, it is tempting for us to talk about sin as though it was something that happened to us. So we talk about being overcome by sin or broken by sin. And I think sometimes we talk that way because it feels like it removes some of the guilt. We become the victim rather than the perpetrator. But do you see, Eve is driven by her own desire. Her desire to be like God. Her desire to satisfy her physical longings. Her desire for wisdom. She's driven by her desire. And so she deliberately, willfully disobeys God's command. And Adam... Adam, who was right there with her, Adam, whose job it was to lead and to protect, well, what does he say? Nothing. He's silent. He stands there and says nothing and then eats the fruit along with his wife. God's word is disobeyed. And so God's good creation is ruined. The good order of Genesis 1 and 2 is reversed. It's flipped on its head. Rather than listening to the creator, Adam and Eve listened to a snake, to a creature. 
rather than submit to God's loving rule, they try to claim God's throne. Rather than live in God's perfect kingdom, they try to set up a kingdom of their own. And it's been that way ever since. The Bible is clear, we saw it this morning, that Adam and Eve are not the only two people guilty of this rebellion. Each one of us distorts, denies and disobeys God's word. Each one of us has bought that lie that true freedom, true happiness is found in rejecting God and trying to rule our own lives. And so each one of us is guilty and experiences the consequences of our sin. The consequences that Satan said would never happen, but that immediately we begin to see in verse 7. Look there with me, look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The choice to eat the fruit, the choice that Eve thought would bring satisfaction and freedom, brings guilt and shame. Until now, Adam and Eve, they they were naked. They were open. They were intimate. They had nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. They were naked, but now they feel naked. Now they feel exposed, vulnerable, shameful. And so they try to cover up. They try to hide. And again, we know that feeling, don't we? The feeling that we don't want people, even people who are closest to us, to know what we're really like. It's the feeling that causes us to carefully choose the photos that we put on Instagram or Facebook to to convince other people, to convince ourselves that, that our life is perfectly together. Perfectly happy when the reality is we are lonely or depressed or insecure. Or it's the feeling that causes us to to sign up to every church row, to every team and event because we want people to think we're on fire for the Lord. When the reality is our relationship with him is cold and distant. Deep down, we know that we are far worse than we would like other people to think. And so we cover up. We try to hide our sin. But God isn't fooled. The creator of our hearts knows our hearts. He knows what we're like, and as we'll see next week, he cannot let our rebellion, our sin, go unpunished. He's not the pushover that Satan would like us to think he is. And so every human, every rebel, will face God's promised consequence of sin. They will die. In the second half of chapter 3, we will see that despite Satan's lies, sin has consequences. There is judgment But there's also hope. There is hope that God will not leave humanity in its sin. You see, if we fast forward through the Bible to the beginning of Luke's gospel, 
Well, we find another encounter between Satan and a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And just like in the Garden of Eden, Satan tempts Jesus to doubt God's goodness and to disobey his word. But unlike the first people, unlike every single person since, Jesus isn't taken in. He doesn't believe the lies of Satan. No, he sticks to God's word. Jesus knows his father's word is good. He knows his father's word is true. And so he perfectly obeys. He succeeds where Adam and Eve fail. But then by the end of Luke's gospel, we find, well, we find this perfect man, Jesus, hanging on a cross. We see the perfect man die. Why does the innocent Jesus face God's punishment for the guilty? Well, the Bible says it's because he dies as our substitute. The Apostle Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus Christ dies to pay the penalty, the price of our rebellion. So that people who have rejected God, people like you and people like me, through faith in Jesus Christ, can receive forgiveness instead of judgment and life instead of death. And so think back to that big question at the beginning. How did the world end up like this? How did we get here? What is the cause of all that is wrong in our world? The Bible's answer, Romans' answer, Genesis' answer is people. You, me, us. In rebelling against God, we have made a mess of his world and we will face the consequences. And so if people are the problem, what is the solution? What's the hope for our world? The Bible's answer is not a better education, not a better government, not better parenting, not better morals. No, our only hope is a person, one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the perfect man who died in our place so that we can be forgiven and who transforms us into people who can trust and obey God's good word again. Transforms us into people who can live how God intended us to live. To be the people he created us to be. Jesus Christ is the only hope for a broken world. He is our only hope. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we have heard both this morning and this evening of the different ways in which we reject you, of the ways in which we think we can run our lives and this world without you. Father, we thank you for showing us the foolishness of sin, the offense of sin. And Father, most of all, we thank you for showing us the Saviour, 
We praise you this evening for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient, yet who died for us so that we could be forgiven and restored and made clean by you. Amen.